Hey everyone, this is Pedro Chung, and welcome to Bible Sumo Weekly, a Bible study podcast for everyday Christians. We are continuing our series in the book of Genesis, and in this special episode, we will answer the question, why did God choose Jacob over Esau? To conclude our survey of the Genesis narrative of Jacob, an important question needs to be asked. Why did God choose Jacob, not Esau? Or another way to ask this question is, on what basis did God choose Jacob over Esau? One of the most important New Testament commentaries on the Jacob narrative was written by the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 9. And Romans 9 is perhaps the clearest teaching on the doctrine of unconditional election. Most evangelical Christians in the world today do not believe in this doctrine of unconditional election. Now, during this episode, I am going to explain this doctrine and the most common alternative view. But before making these definitions, let me begin by highlighting four common ways that people look at Romans chapter 9 and not accept the doctrine of unconditional election. So the first way is to systematically avoid Romans chapter 9 altogether. And instead, what people will do is they will focus on other Bible verses, other passages, like John chapter 3, verse 16, where the apostle John writes, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Notice the second half of John chapter 3, verse 16, when it says, Whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. The logic is if A, then not B, but C. So if A, whoever believes in him, then not B, should not perish, but C, have eternal life. But what does John 3.16 actually say about who will believe or who has the ability to believe? Now, one may think that since John 3.16 states that all who believe will be saved, then it means that everyone has the capacity to believe. So, when John says whoever believes, it is implying that everyone can believe. But this is not necessarily true. Remember earlier in the same chapter in John chapter 3, Jesus has a dialogue with Nicodemus. And he tells Nicodemus that unless you are born again, you cannot even see the kingdom of God, let alone enter the kingdom of God. Let me read John chapter 3, verses 3 to 6. Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicholas said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So we see here that a person can't choose or will himself to be born either the first time or the second time. Nicodemus clearly identifies and understands this. And notice that later in John chapter 6, Jesus goes one step further by teaching that no one in the flesh can come to God. And that left to ourselves, we are so corrupt that unless God the Spirit opens our eyes, we will never believe and choose Jesus. 
Jesus states in John chapter 6, verse 44, no one can come to me unless the father who has sent me draws him and I will raise him up on that last day. Later, Jesus reiterates this teaching and he says in John chapter 6, verses 55 and 56, Jesus saying, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Now, the English word or the Greek word that's translated can in John chapter 6, verse 44 and John chapter 6, verse 55, it comes from the Greek word dunamai. Now, in the English language, you may recall a lot of times your English teacher will explain what's the difference between the English word can and the English word may. The word can generally refers to ability, and the English word may refers to permission. Now, unlike the English word can, which sometimes inadvertently can be used to refer to permission and not ability, the Greek word dunamai, by definition, is unequivocal. Dunamai does not refer to permission. It refers to ability, both intrinsic and extrinsic ability. So Jesus is teaching explicitly here in John chapter 6 that no one has the ability, no one has the dunamis to come to Christ without the work of God. And accepting this teaching given by Christ was difficult. And we see here in verse 56 in John chapter 6 that many of Jesus' followers left him after hearing this. In fact, so many left that Jesus even asked his disciples, his 12 disciples, if they too were leaving him. And remember Peter's answer? Peter says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. So the first way that people will avoid the doctrine of unconditional election in Romans 9 is simply by ignoring it and looking to other verses. The second way is they will say that Romans 9 is not talking about individuals, but Romans 9, Paul is talking about nations. So in other words, the Arab nation came from Ishmael, while the Jewish nation comes from Isaac. The Arabs came from Esau, while the Jews came from Jacob. So God's election, God's choice described here in Romans 9 is not talking about individual salvation, But Paul is talking about God's sovereign, merciful selection of the Jewish nation as a whole for a particular blessing. And so the Abrahamic covenant blessing is that all nations will be blessed, but chiefly to the Jewish nation. And this is what Paul had in mind in Romans 9. But you'll notice here that when Paul uses the illustration here in Romans 9, he's using the illustration of two individuals, Jacob and Esau. And I don't believe any serious Bible student will argue for this, but some will try. The third way that people might explain Romans chapter 9 as not referring to or teaching the doctrine of unconditional election is by referring to Romans 9 as individual election of temporal and material blessing. And this individual election is not referring to the election that leads to individual salvation. Now, to make this argument, I think you have to ignore the entire context of Romans chapter 1 to 8, which is all about salvation by faith 
appropriated by the individual. And in fact, Romans chapter 8, the preceding chapter, is where Paul introduces the concept of predestination of the individual. Remember, Romans 8, verse 29 and 30, it says that for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And to those whom he predestined, he also called. To those whom he called, he also justified. To those whom he justified, he also glorified. This is not talking about temporal or material blessing. Paul is talking about choice, election that leads to salvation. The fourth way that people will explain Romans 9 as not teaching the doctrine of unconditional election is what I will call the doctrine of prescience. And this appears to me to be the most common belief amongst today's Christians. So what is the doctrine of prescience? Well, it basically is the belief that God does elect and choose individuals to ultimate salvation. But the basis of God's choice, the basis of this election is on God's prior knowledge or his foresight, that is his prescience on future events and future actions. So in other words, God, because he's all knowing, he knows and he can see in advance who will want to choose him. And to those that he has this foreknowledge of this choice, he will predestine those individuals to salvation. But I believe the doctrine of prescience, it doesn't actually explain the doctrine of predestination. It actually denies it. Now, just to define terms, this doctrine or this view of prescience is sometimes also called the semi-Pelagian view. Let's read now what the Apostle Paul, inspired by God, actually writes in Romans chapter 9. Beginning in verse 10, Paul writes, And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, But because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Jacob and Esau were full brothers. They were twins. They had identical environmental background. Same mother, same father, same birthday. And we'll see here, looking at these verses in Romans 9, three things about God's choice. The first is pretty clear. God's choice occurs before birth. And we see here that the decree of God's choice chronologically occurs before Jacob and Esau were born. God's choice was made before they did anything good or evil. And I should point out, though, that the doctrine of prescience or the semi-Pelagian view upholds this first point, that God's choice occurs before birth. The semi-Pelagians would say, of course, we do also believe that God chooses, God elects before anyone is born, including Jacob and Esau. But notice next the subjunctive clause introduced by in order that, And this phrase in order that indicates purpose. 
Paul says, in order that God's purpose of election might continue. So in other words, the basis of God's choice is that God's purposes will stand. The basis of God's choice is to make certain that his purposes are established and it's his purpose alone. The doctrine of prescience teaches that God's choice is not based on his purposes alone, but it's based on man's will. In other words, God's choice is dependent or based on the foreknowledge of man's will and his future decision. So Paul states in Romans chapter 9, first, that God's choice occurred before birth. Second, that the basis of God's choice or the purpose of God's choice is so that his purposes will stand. But thirdly, God's choice is not based on man's will. And we see this very clear in verse 16, where Paul writes, So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. There is the common human notion that man's will and inclination is neutral. Jonathan Edwards' Freedom of the Will is perhaps the best treatise on man's will. And Edwards defines the will as that by which the mind chooses anything. John Locke uh, earlier states uh, in his writings that the will signifies nothing but a power or ability to prefer or choose. Edwards further explains that the determination of the will supposes an effect which must have a cause. And Edwards argues that free moral agents always acts according to the strongest inclinations they have at the moment of choice. So in other words, when we sin, when you and I sin, it's our inclination at the moment, that inclination at the moment to sin is greater than our inclination to obey Christ. On the flip side, when we obey Christ, when we obey his commands, our inclination at the moment to obey Christ is greater than our inclination or desire to sin. John Calvin says that if what we mean by free will is that fallen man has the ability to choose what he wants, then yes, man has free will. But if what we mean is by free will is that fallen man has the power and ability to choose the righteousness of Christ, then free will is far too grandiose a term to apply to fallen man. Now, using the illustration of Jacob and Esau, Paul in Romans chapter 9 gives a profound explanation of free will. There is free will, and God's choice to grant mercy and salvation is based on free will but it is not based on the free will of man. Our salvation and God's election and choice is founded on the free will of God. God the creator has the sovereign free will to choose Jacob over Esau. Now, usually you'll recall that the Jewish inheritance goes to the elder son. And so to make it absolutely clear and certain that the blessing received is not due to human works or human will, but in order that God's purposes might stand, God chooses the younger son, Jacob, who we had studied earlier in Genesis, 
as a liar, a deceiver, and supplanter. Now, going back to chapter 9, verse 13, another question may be asked, how do you explain the sentence, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated? Is the Bible teaching that God hates people? Doesn't the Bible teach that God loves everyone unconditionally? Well, I think there are two ways that the Bible speaks of the love of God. And let me read to you again, Jonathan Edwards, what he wrote in 1785 in The Nature of True Virtue. He writes, love is commonly distinguished into love of benevolence and love of complacence. Love of benevolence is that affection or propensity of the heart to any being which causes it to incline to its well-being or disposes it to desire and take pleasure in its happiness. But what is commonly called love of complacence presupposes beauty, for it is no other than delight in beauty or complacence in the person or being beloved for his beauty. So let me try to explain to you what Jonathan Edwards is saying. He's saying that there are two types of love. The first love, he he uses the term, the love of benevolence. And you know that the English word benevolence, it means goodwill. So in other words, God has the basic attitude of goodwill to all his creatures. In fact, he has an attitude of goodwill that's directed to all of humanity. And we might include beneficence with benevolence. That is that God also shows beneficence, referring to his giving of good gifts to people indiscriminately. He bestows gifts and benefits to people of all nations. And you recall when we studied Genesis chapter 36, we see God's beneficence toward Esau. But there is another dimension of God's love that the Bible speaks. And Edwards uses the term, the love of complacence, that God also has a love of complacence. Now, The word complacency in the English language sometimes can be referred to smugness, but that's not what Edwards is talking about. He uses the word complacency as taking delight in the object of one's affections simply by virtue of the object's beauty. And the best example of this love of complacence is the love that God the Father has for his beloved son, Christ Jesus. That love that the Father has for his son is a love of complacence. So, while God extends his benevolent love toward all creation, he extends a different type of love, a love of complacence, to those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, remember, in Romans chapter 3, Paul teaches and explains that God imputes, that is, he credits the righteousness of Christ Jesus to his elect. And our adoption as children of God means that we are included in this special complacent love. Those that are outside that adoption, they don't share this same complacent love of God. The word hate in verse 13, it's not referring to loathing. When we use the English term hate, we often think of an attitude that comes from a posture of malice, 
but God forbids us to hate people. In fact, we are called to show the love of benevolence even to our enemies, like what Jesus teaches in Matthew chapter 5, verse 44. But for those who don't experience God's love of complacency on the basis of Christ, even though they experience God's love of benevolence, you can categorize or describe this contrast as hate. Because God's love of benevolence is so much less than God's love of complacence. Jesus uh, taught in Luke chapter 14, verse 26 and 27, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And what Jesus is saying here is that compared to our love for Christ, your love, your level of love to your family, because it is less, it can be described by the Greek word meseo, which is translated hate. Remember when we studied uh, Leah and Rachel? And you remembered Leah had a complaint to Jacob. For Jacob had his deepest affections for Rachel. Jacob had a love of complacence for Rachel. Jacob was married first to Leah, and it wasn't that Jacob was cruel to Leah. But because Leah only experienced the love of benevolence, but not the love of complacence, Leah accused Jacob by saying, I am hated by my husband. I am second in terms of Jacob's preference. And so compared to his affections, his love of complacence for Rachel, it makes me say that my husband hates me. So to summarize, one, we were chosen by God before we were born. Two, we were chosen so that God's purposes will stand. And three, we were chosen not based on man's will, or man's works, but based on God's sovereign free will to extend mercy. Now, when Paul teaches this, he anticipates two common objections. Now, I want to address the first objection, and it's summarized in three words. That's not fair. The first objection to this teaching of God's unconditional election is that there is injustice with God. So the Apostle Paul anticipates and acknowledges this objection in verses 14 and 15 in chapter 9, when Paul writes, What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So Paul answers this rhetorical question, is there injustice on God's part with the Greek phrase me genoito, which can be translated in English by no means, God forbid, no, no, a thousand times no, or my favorite translation, may it never be. Paul then quotes Exodus chapter 33, verse 19. And let me read to you uh, the verse uh, back in Exodus. Moses says, please show me your glory. And God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you 
and will proclaim before you my name, Yahweh. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. So just a little bit of context with Exodus chapter 33. You remember that Moses, after interceding with God, pleading to God to spare the nation of Israel after their pagan worship of the golden calf, he returns to God a discouraged man. And so Moses asked God to reveal himself, to show his face and glory, to help Moses persevere in his service to continue to lead God's people. And notice how God responds to Moses. First, God restates his name, Yahweh, who he first gave to Moses back in Exodus chapter 3. But then Yahweh God highlights one of his attributes. And interesting, it is not his attribute of holiness. It's not like Isaiah chapter 6 when the angels cried out, holy, holy, holy. God doesn't even highlight his unconditional love. Rather, God in Exodus chapter 33, when Moses is asking God to show him his face, to show him his glory, to show who God really is, God here affirms his sovereignty and divine prerogative to show mercy. Now, how does this answer, how does Exodus 33:19 answer the question, is there injustice with God? So let me try to explain. Let, imagine with me that I draw a circle and inside this first circle is justice. So in other words, any type of justice is in this first circle. Outside the circle of justice, anything that's outside the circle that's not justice will be things that I'll use the term non-justice. So everything in the first circle is justice. Everything that's outside the circle of justice is non-justice. So let me ask you a question. What is injustice and where does it go? Well, injustice is basically getting something bad that you don't deserve. And is injustice justice? Well, of course not. So injustice is not justice. It is outside the circle of justice. It is in the realm of non-justice. So we can draw another circle, injustice, and it's outside the circle of justice. Well, let me ask you another question. What is mercy? And where does mercy belong? Well, mercy is basically withholding a punishment that you deserve. And mercy is not justice. Uh, if If we get what we deserve, we get justice. We don't have mercy. So mercy is not justice. Mercy is outside the circle of justice. It is also in the realm of non-justice. But let me ask you another question. Is mercy good? Well, of course mercy is good. Um, uh, we, We want to extend and show mercy. And so there's the circle of justice. Everything that's outside of justice is non-justice. 
and injustice is in the non-justice realm, mercy is also in the non-justice realm. Now, because all of us men are sinful and we deserve God's condemnation, none of us is wronged or treated unjustly if God chooses to condemn us. For God to condemn sinners is not injustice. God condemning sinners is justice, and justice is good. Mercy is also good. So, we see here that God chooses who gets justice and who gets mercy. Both are good. But with God, no one gets injustice. And one of man's greatest blasphemies is the accusation that God is not merciful enough. God owes no one mercy. Mercy is given voluntarily. And by definition of God being God, he can decide to whom he will bestow his mercy. So back to the original question, why did God choose Jacob, not Esau? Answer? God chooses to whom he grants mercy, not on the basis of man's will or even the foreknowledge of man's will, but it is based on his sovereign free will, God's free will, so that his purposes might stand. And it's that divine prerogative that is what makes him God. Thanks for listening to Bible Sumo Weekly. For more information about me or this podcast, visit our website at BibleSumo.com. In our next episode, we will return to our series in the book of Genesis, and we begin the narrative of Jacob's son, Joseph. Follow our podcasts and listen to our Bible studies each and every week here at BibleSumo Weekly.